Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Acts chapter 28. And uh, you may have thought we finished this last week. Why is he going back here again this morning? But uh, there's a little bit more for us to consider. I'd like to begin reading uh, the last two verses again. Acts chapter 28, we'll start in verse 30. And may the Lord bless us as we read His Word together. It's inspired by God, profitable for all things. Verse 30. And He stayed two full years in His own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to Him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. This, of course, as we know, is a reference to the Apostle Paul. He's in Rome. He's in prison. He's in these private quarters. This is not like an upscale condominium. Uh, This is still a difficult time. He's still in chains. He's still confined. He's still restricted. And yet, he has an incredible amount of freedom. So he's there for two years, welcoming all who came to him, freedom for people to come in and, and to uh, spend time with him, to be taught by him to, as he was sharing the gospel as well. He's preaching the kingdom of God, speaking, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. And this is how Luke's book of Acts ends. So why did Luke end it this way? I mean, what happened to the Apostle Paul? We're not told. And so it kind of raises the question that it certainly seems like that there is more to come. And what I'd like to uh, suggest to you is that uh, that Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, ended it this way because in fact there, there was more. And what I'd like to do this morning is to consider with you a fourth missionary journey that the Apostle Paul took and that when he was in prison here in Rome for two years, he eventually is going to be released and continue his ministry for maybe four or five more years and then get arrested again a second time and then ultimately be put to death by Nero Caesar. So I'd like to actually um, uh, walk through that with you to consider uh, some of the points that support this this, uh, theory. First off, Paul was very confident that he would be released. Now some of the letters that he wrote when he was in Rome during that two-year prison uh, imprisonment, reflect his optimism that he was going to be released. So let's just look at a few of the verses. For example, in uh, Philippians, when he's writing his letter to the Philippian church, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. In Philippians 1, 25 and 26, he expresses that he will not <clears throat> die and go to be with the Lord but He will remain with them and eventually come to them again. 
Philippians 2.24, he expresses his desire to come shortly. In Philemon 22, he tells Philemon to prepare a place for him because he hopes to be able to come and visit Philemon. Now, Philemon and Philippians were written when he was in prison. So he is, he is optimistic. Matter of fact, I think he's growing in his confidence that in fact he would be released. Next, we can see that in his uh, previous letter to the church at Rome that he wrote on his third missionary journey, he actually expressed his desire to go to Spain twice. Now, this is only a desire that he expressed uh, at this point. And this is no indication that he actually made it to, to Spain, but at least he has a desire to go there for whatever that's worth. Next, the third reason is a lot of the early church historical accounts say that Paul was released from prison. For example, Eusebius, the uh, early church historian, 3rd, 4th century, said that Paul was released. Clement of Rome, who ministered and lived in the 1st century, and the Muratorian canon of the 2nd century say that Paul took the gospel to Spain. Now this is not scripture, but these are historical testimonies that in fact he was released and he did go to Spain to preach the gospel. Also, if you look at the itinerary of the Apostle Paul in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Those three letters are called the pastoral epistles. The places that Paul went with the people that he went there doesn't match any of his earlier missionary journeys. For example, in 1 Timothy 1.3, it clearly implies that Paul and Timothy were in Ephesus together and Paul leaves and leaves Timothy in Ephesus. You don't find that anywhere else in the travels of the Apostle Paul. In Titus chapter 1, Paul tells Titus that he left him in Crete, the island of Crete, to carry on his ministry there. There was a never a time when Paul and Titus were at Crete prior to uh, this, this period of time. So many people believe that these things happened after he was released from his first Roman imprisonment. Also, when he writes 2 Timothy, Paul is very near death. He says his departure is soon. And yet, when you read his other letters that he wrote when he was in prison the first time, he's very optimistic. He's very, he believes he's going to be released. He's full of joy. But there's a different tone to 2 Timothy, the very last letter that he wrote. So when you fit all this together, there's good evidence that Paul was released from prison for two years. He carried on his ministry for probably four to five years, then was rearrested in Rome, and eventually was beheaded by Nero. At least that's what the, uh, the church tradition says. So with all this in mind, I want to uh, kind of walk you through, if you can see some of this, of potentially where he went. Now there's different ways to understand and examine his travels after he was released from prison. 
This is one by William Hendrickson, who's a, a great Reformed commentator. Uh, his commentaries are always worth uh, buying and reading and studying. So William Hendrickson's view is this, and I think he makes a good case for it, that Paul is in Rome and then he gets released. From there he goes to Crete. Titus is with him, probably Timothy as well. And he leaves Titus behind in Crete. And he's going to carry on his ministry there. From there, Paul goes up to Ephesus. He visits Ephesus again. And there he leaves Timothy. So Timothy is going to stay in Ephesus for probably a pretty long time. In Ephesus, he may make a short journey over to Colossae. Because remember, Philemon lives in Colossae. And he told Philemon in his letter to him, prepare a place for me, I hope to come to you soon. So he may have gone to Colossae for a short visit to see Philemon. And then he goes up to Philippi. And he, goes, he says he's going to go to Macedonia in 1 Timothy. But in, first, in Philippi or Macedonia, he writes 1 Timothy and Titus. Those two pastoral epistles during this time. Then from Philippi goes to Nicopolis. And that's when he writes his letter to Titus. And he tells, well, he, he wrote it back when he was in Philippi, but he tells Titus that he's going to Nicopolis and he wants Titus to come to Nicopolis and spend time with him there for the winter. So that would seem to make sense. Now, if he went to Spain, it may have been at this point in time. Once he met all the people that, in his letters, he said, I hope to come to you soon. Once he goes and sees them, then he may have been freed up in his in his ministry to go to Spain, possibly. So at this point, it's believed that he could have gone to Spain, preached the gospel for we don't know how long, maybe he stayed there a year or two. I mean, it's just hard to know. And then he comes back and he ends up in Miletus. And he says in 2 Timothy that he left Miletus there sick. So apparently his gift of healing is not operating anymore. Some of those supernatural gifts, I think, phased out with the, uh, with the apostles. But he visits Miletus, and then he goes to Troas, and there he leaves his cloak, his books, and the parchments that he mentions in Second Timothy. From Troas, he goes to Corinth. He leaves another one of his fellow workers there. And then from Corinth, he somehow ends back up in Rome where he is imprisoned again, and, and eventually is, is uh, beheaded by Nero Caesar. So this is one, uh, I think, a, a reputable explanation for what happened to the Apostle Paul uh, after the book of Acts. So I want to really kind of camp on these three pastoral epistles this morning. First Timothy, Titus, written from Macedonia, from Philippi, and then later on, the very last letter is his second letter to Timothy called Second Timothy. We refer to these letters as the pastoral epistles, but these Timothy and Titus were not pastors as we think of the term. Uh, they were apostolic delegates. They were there representing the Apostle Paul. They were 
ministers who served under the Apostle Paul. He's kind of like the commander. And he's sending out his troops to do ministry, to share the gospel. So Titus and Timothy were not pastors of those churches. They were sent there by Paul for a short period of time to do ministry. And then they would go back and report into the Apostle Paul and he would possibly send them to some other place to minister. So we, we really kind of mislabel it when we call them pastoral epistles. Uh, the churches are, are run by two church offices, elders and deacons. There's not a third office pastor. All elders are pastors. That's how that fits together. But they were apostolic delegates. They're kind of like substitute teachers. When Paul is gone, he sends one of his key men and they carry on the ministry in his absence. One of the important themes that you find in these three letters is Paul's emphasis on sound doctrine. So if you look at these three letters, the pastoral epistles that he's writing during his, we would call it the fourth missionary journey and his imprisonment, his second Roman imprisonment. One of the big emphases, again, is just the importance on being sound in your doctrine and in your theology. So just look at uh, this just for a moment. There are eight times in these three short letters that he emphasizes and exhorts and encourages them to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, 1 Timothy 1.10, 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words. 2 Timothy 1.13, retain the standard of sound words. Sound, it's a, it's a word that means healthy, vibrant, live, consistent with Holy Scripture. So he's exhorting them, retain the standard of sound words that you've heard from me. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time has come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And they want to have their ears tickled to hear whatever is, is compatible with their desires and their worldly influences. Same thing in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Elders must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Titus 1.13, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Titus 2.1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men will be sound in the faith that is holding to the truth of God's Word. So this is a, an emphasis that you find really throughout these three letters. So that what we find is that during this last phase of Paul's ministry, at least what the Holy Spirit has been pleased to preserve for us in Holy Scripture are three letters written to two individual men. Men that he had trained. Men that he trusted. Men that he left behind to carry on the work of the ministry when he was gone. And you, saw, you see that what the Holy Spirit has recorded for us are three letters that that reveal Paul's heart to shepherd and train up young men, middle-aged men, whatever, to do the work of ministry. You can see that reflected in these three, three letters. That these men are to serve the various churches that Paul sends them to under his guidance, his direction. And these are very valuable letters for the, the entire church to read and study and meditate upon. Because even though these are personal letters written to two men, two godly men, two leaders, 
the things he is exhorting them are things they are to teach to the rest of the church. So even though it's a letter written to Timothy or a letter written to Titus, these are things that he wants them to teach the church. So they're very profitable for all of us, particularly for men with a heart to, to minister. But for, for any men and women, there are transferable exhortations and principles found in these letters to be a blessing to the entire church. With that in mind, what I'd like to do now is to briefly kind of walk through. So turn to 1 Timothy, if you will, in your Bible. Timothy has been left in Ephesus. He is uh, serving there, ministering to the church there, dealing with issues, false doctrines, false teachers within the church. And just uh, what I want to do is just kind of walk through briefly and give you a feel again for what is on the heart for this great man of God, the Apostle Paul. So he's in Philippi somewhere up in the Macedonian area. He writes this first letter to Timothy. And he begins to uh, notice in verse 2, he just calls him to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So Timothy came to faith under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And there was, a, there was just a strong, warm, loving bond between these two men. Paul was like his father. Timothy was like his son. So notice in verse 3, he just launches right into this upon my departure from Macedonia remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines so he's exhorting Timothy to teach and to oppose the false teachings that were going on within the church he goes on drop down to verse 13 he shares a little bit of his own testimony with Timothy I was formerly a blasphemer a persecutor a violent aggressor Yet I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of the Lord was more than abundant faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So he's just sharing with Timothy and glorying in the grace of God that he's exhorting Timothy to live in. He goes on in verse 18. He says again, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight. Timothy sort of had a reputation, and many think this is probably true, that maybe he was a bit timid at times, maybe a bit fearful, as certainly we, would, we, we can all identify with that. And so a lot of what Paul does with Timothy is to exhort him to stand strong, to fight the good fight, to stay in there. Don't be intimidated by unbelievers. Fight the good fight of faith and teach the Word of God. In verse 20, chapter 1, Paul calls out two men that have abandoned the faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Sometimes you've got to call people out. He called them out by name. So that basically they suffered shipwreck regarding their faith and he's handing them over to Satan so they'd be taught not to blaspheme. Chapter 2, he exhorts 
Timothy to teach the people. Much of again, First Timothy, what Paul is doing is is telling Timothy what to teach the church and how the church should function, how the church should live. So that's a lot of what's going on in First Timothy. In chapter two, the chapter starts out with a call to prayer. The second part of it is where he says that women are not allowed to teach or exercise authority over men, but are to remain quiet. That men are to be the leaders. And uh, and then in chapter 3, he launches into men serving in the offices of elders and deacons. So all of chapter 3 is him laying forth the qualifications for an elder, qualifications for the deacon, men who are to be leaders of the church. So he's, he's reminding Timothy and exhorting Timothy how the church is to operate. You need two church offices. If you look in uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how, to, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So, Teach them this, how they, they are to conduct themselves. Uh, appoint elders, appoint deacons, and let them live according to these principles I'm giving to you. Verse 16 may be an early Christian hymn. Uh, many would uh, suggest that this was possibly something that they sang. In chapter 4, he moves into the whole uh, fall into apostasy uh, that was uh, going to be taking place. In the latter times, verse 1 of chapter 4, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. These guys are going to be liars. They're going to be like hypocrites. And their conscience is going to be seared as with a a branding iron. That means they'll be scalded, that the nerves will be totally destroyed and they'll be numb. And he says to confront them, But you on your end of things, verse 6, be faithful to the Word, constantly nourish the people on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. Discipline yourself, verse 7, for godliness. Bodily discipline is of little profit. It's profitable a little bit, but godliness is more profitable. So discipline yourself for godliness. And then look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself to be an example of those who believe. Now this is something that we can all be exhorted to, right? A lot of these principles and exhortations apply to everybody. Even though he's specifically given it to Timothy. Verse 13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching so that it will ensure salvation not only for yourself but for those who hear you. So again, he's giving counsel to Timothy what to teach the people and how to take care of his own soul, his own walk with Christ, to be diligent in these things. In chapter 5, he deals with two main topics, how to deal with the widows in the church. 
and how to deal with elders in the church. So that takes up all of chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he comes back in, he exhorts slaves how to respond to their masters. And then in verse 3 of chapter 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, then basically deal with them appropriately. So in all this, you you see a very heavy emphasis on teaching, a heavy emphasis on living out a godly life, pursuing that which is righteous and godly and holy. And later on in chapter 6, he's going to exhort uh, the people about the danger of the love of money. That the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Money is not evil in and of itself. The love of money is what's evil. So he exhorts Timothy to exhort the people to be on guard against that. Verse 11, Flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godly, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life which you've been called to. I charge you, verse 13, in the presence of God that you keep the commandment and that you serve God faithfully. And then in verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments that's falsely called knowledge. So guard it, Timothy, You've been taught this. You have the Word of God. Guard it. Fight for it. If anyone seeks to to steal it away or or take it away from you, no, you stand firm. You guard the truth of, of sound doctrine. So a lot of that is just what is on his heart. He's in Philippi. He knows that Timothy is in Ephesus. A very challenging city to minister to was Ephesus. I mean, they had the the Temple of Artemis there, renowned throughout all of Asia for one of the biggest goddesses that people worshipped. The paganism, the the uh, the cult worship was all over the place. The immorality, the sin was heavy. It's a very difficult place to minister to. So he's exhorting Timothy to stand firm on sound doctrine, teach it, refute those who contradict. And flee sin, pursue godliness. So that kind of sums up First Timothy. Now the second letter that Paul writes is Titus. So flip over to Titus. We'll skip Second Timothy for a moment. Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete. And the reputation of the Cretans was dismal. Look at uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Well, first off, before I get there, in verse 5, the first thing Paul tells Titus to do is to appoint elders within the church. Again, he's very concerned that there be godly men, qualified men to be elders, because they are the ones who lead the church. Not just one man pastor, but a plurality of elders. That's the way God set it up. So he exhorts Titus to appoint elders, verse 5, in every church. And then he gives the qualifications again, like Paul wrote 
in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But then we drop down to verse... Oh, let's see. He, he says in verse 10 that there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the Jews, those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Titus basically was ministering among a people group that were known they had the reputation of being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And I think there are Cretans that are still alive today. I think there's probably some in America and some of, some of the churches. These Cretans do not die easily. I mean, they're all over the place. They multiply like rabbits. So he exhorts him, And then notice verse 13. Paul says, this testimony is true. I mean, what? These guys, they really are that bad. But you're there ministering to them. I put you in a very difficult place. But you need to be faithful to the Word of God. So he exhorts him. In verse 16, he says, they profess to know God. But by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now that's why they're, they're lazy and they are gluttons. They're lazy gluttons or evil beasts. They don't do anything good. They're not out serving people. You know, they're just they're, they're liars. All they care about themselves. And so He assesses their spiritual condition in verse 16 by saying, oh yeah, they're in the church. They profess to know God. But look at their life. There's nothing in their life that shows that they're really born again. In fact, they're detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Now, one of the unique things about Titus is that in this short letter, uh, Paul emphasizes the importance of good deeds six times. And I'll let you read through the letter and discover those six times. But this is heavily emphasized in this letter. That Titus is to teach the people do good deeds. Do good works. Not to earn your salvation. You can't be saved by doing good works. You're saved by God's grace. But out of thankfulness and out of a manifestation of your love for God and your desire to, to live a life that pleases Him, do good works. They don't save you, but they show evidence that your faith is alive. So it's heavily emphasized in the book of Titus. Then starting in chapter 2, but as for you, verse 1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Again, sound doctrine is critically important. The address is older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And he gives instruction on how they should live godly and holy lives. And all of that is consistent with sound doctrine. See, sound doctrine is not designed to just be stuffed in the head and left alone. Sound doctrine is supposed to influence my life, my heart, to affect the way I live out my life. So that's, that's the emphasis here. And then we come to uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. One of the great passages, probably all of you are very familiar with this. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Not that it actually saves everybody, but the Gospel is being brought to all kinds of people groups. Jews and Gentiles, free, slave, men, women, all kinds of men. Instructing us, this is what the grace of God does, instructing us to deny ungodliness, verse 12, and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And why is he emphasizing that? Because who's, who's he preaching to? Cretans. Evil beasts. Lazy gluttons. Liars. When the grace of God comes and saves you, then it instructs you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. If you claim to be a believer, but you're living in rebellion against God, you're just deceiving yourself. Then verse 13, looking, this is also what the grace of God does in the heart of those that are saved. Looking for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for what? Good deeds. Good works. That's the mark of grace. In chapter 3, he moves on and teach the people taught to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. In verse 4 he says, that the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Your good deeds can't save you. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. So he exhorts him just to the simplicity of the gospel of grace. This is what he's supposed to preach. You're not saved by works. You're saved by the works of Jesus Christ, not your own works. Oh sinner, you're under the, the judgment of God. You can't create a righteousness that is pleasing to God. You must repent. You must put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He bore the wrath of God. He bore the sins of sinners just like you. Repent and believe in Him and He will forgive you. And He'll give you the grace of His own perfect righteousness which will qualify you to go to heaven. A righteousness that you could never produce. He will give His own righteousness to you by faith alone in Christ alone. And then down in verse 12, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. So he's saying, basically, I'm going to send replacements to you, Titus, on the island of Crete. And when they get there, I want you to come meet me at Nicopolis. You remember that on the map. Because I'm going to spend the winter there. So he wanted to spend that time with Titus. Well, with all that, now we come to the last letter that Paul wrote. And this is 2 Timothy. So turn back a book. 2 Timothy has a, an entirely different feel to it. 
Because Paul is not free anymore. He is a prisoner again. He's in chains again. We see this stated in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner. So He's been captured again. So this is His second Roman imprisonment. Verse 16, Anesiphorus often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 2 Timothy 2.9, For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the Word of God is not imprisoned. And even though the tone of 2 Timothy is, is totally different, and Paul is telling Timothy that he's in prison, he celebrates and rejoices in the freedom and the power of the Spirit of God and that the Word of God is not imprisoned. Just because he's confined doesn't mean the Word of God is confined. He's probably still preaching it. Other people are still preaching it. So you can, you can lock up God's servants, but you can't lock up the Word of God. You can burn the Bibles and try to destroy the books, but the, but the Word of God is still going to get out there. The Word of God is not imprisoned. There are people faithful that will continue to share it. And you know, we've had recently, uh, like in Canada, you know, pastors that have been recently thrown into to prison for their faithfulness in preaching the Word. I don't know that much about them. I don't know about all their theology and everything, but they've been thrown into prison. But still, even though they were in prison, the church still met and they still worshipped. You cannot imprison the Word of God. And that's part of the encouragement that he's given to Timothy. And then look at 2 Timothy 4.6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul now realizes that his days are numbered and he's about ready to be executed. He senses that. And he writes that in this second letter to Timothy. So, back up to Timothy chapter 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2 to Timothy my beloved son. I understand he knows that he's he's going to be put to death before too long. He doesn't know exactly how long. The day of my departure has come. Timothy my beloved son verse 4 longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Longing to see you, Timothy. Verse 6, he exhorts him again to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And then notice verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. In verse 12, he says, I'm not ashamed. And I'm convinced that He's able to guard what I've entrusted to Him until that day. I'm not ashamed, Paul tells Timothy in verse 12. But rather retain, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the 
faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Word of God, the Gospel, the treasure. Guard it. Fight for it. Don't be ashamed of me or be ashamed of the Gospel or be ashamed of the Word of God. Guard it. Retain it. In verse 16, Anesiphorus and his household, they were not ashamed of my chains. So you kind of get the idea from there, even verse 16, that he's trying to encourage Timothy to be the man of God. To be a stalwart. To not buckle in the face of danger or persecution or imprisonment or even death. In chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then notice verse 2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. In other words, Paul in this last letter, his heart, his mind is not only to encourage Timothy to be bold and strong in his ministry, but to train other men who can carry on the ministry. His heart, knowing his days are limited as he wants the gospel ministry, a strong, faithful gospel ministry to be preserved. So entrust these to other men. Who in turn will be entrust them to the same truths to other men as well. So you can see where his heart is being reflected here. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So he says, Timothy, be willing to suffer. Be willing to be a good soldier. Verse 10. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So here he refers to the elect. There's the elect out there. I don't know who they are. But they're not saved yet. We need to get the Gospel to them. And I'm willing to suffer all things that that be done. That's my calling. I suffer hardship even to imprisonment. But the Word of God is not imprisoned. I endure all things for the sake of the chosen that they may come to faith in Christ and with it have eternal glory. So you can see the heart of an evangelist. A heart of a of a true godly pastor, a shepherd over these young men. He says in verse 15, he exhorts him, chapter 2 still, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to, to be ashamed accurately handing the word of truth. Timothy, study the word. This is your job. This is your calling. Don't be ashamed by not knowing the Word. Handle it accurately. Be a workman who's approved to God. Fulfill your ministry. Avoid all these worldly chatter. Verse 16, worldly empty chatter, false teaching, some saying the resurrection has already happened. But rather, verse 21, be a vessel for honor sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. 
Does that describe us here this morning? Are you useful to the Master? Are you sanctified? A vessel for honor prepared for every good work? That's what Paul wants Timothy to teach the people. Us. Verse 22, Now flee from youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And all those people that are teaching things, that are trying to be argumentative within the church, they just want to pick a, a fight. This is how you deal with them. Verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See, sinners are, under, are captives of Satan. And God must grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth so they can come to their senses and see their sin and see their need of Jesus Christ. And God must break the bonds of Satan so that they can repent and come to faith in Christ. So, deal with all those people, those argumentative people, just with kindness and gentleness. That's the mark I want you to have. Be gentle. Be kind. In chapter 3, he gets into the last day's madness again. People, verse 2, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, unloving. Verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied His power, and avoid such men like this. These latter days, everybody will be loving everything but God. Particularly loving themselves. Loving their money. Loving their pleasure. Not loving God. And those kind of people will be a thorn in your side. Verse 12, Indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But Timothy, verse 14, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of. Verse 15, from childhood you've been taught the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom which leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God might be adequate and equipped for every good deed. That's what you focus on, the Word of God. And all Scripture is inspired. It is profitable. Just spend time in it. Know it well, Timothy. Chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For a time will come when they will not doctrine, wanting to have their ears 
They'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Preach the Word. Do the work of the evangelist. Verse 5. And then again, verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. You know, you poured out drink offerings in conjunction with your sacrifice. About the time you kill the animal. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. His death was imminent. He understood that. The time of my departure has come. Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. And then verse 9, notice this appeal, this heart-touching appeal. Make every effort to come to me soon. He knows he's about to die. He wants to see his son, spiritual son, Timothy, one last time before he dies. Make every effort to come to me soon. And then he begins to share how so many people have abandoned him. Verse 10, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Paul probably sent him there. Titus to Dalmatian. Paul probably sent him there. Only Luke is with me. Good old Luke, the physician. Faithful to the end. Pick up Mark. Bring the cloak, the books, the parchments. Verse 13. Verse 16. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. So apparently he's had his first trial assessment and he escaped death. But there's round two and he knows that this, he just knows that this is going to end in his death. But he says no one support him. They all deserted him. And then drop down again to verse 21. Make every effort to come before winter. Two appeals to Timothy. Come. Come see me. My departure is is near. Come see me one last time. You just get a different feel for 2 Timothy. You see the seriousness of the exhortations. You see the desire of the Apostle Paul for Timothy to train other people to continue to preach and minister the Word of God, to spread the Gospel. You see that heavy on his heart. You feel this sense of desertion by some of his friends. He's all alone and he wants Timothy to come before he dies so he can see him one last time. It's a very touching letter when you read through it and reflect upon it. What Paul wanted for both Timothy and Titus was for them to be men of the Word. Godly men 
who could bring the truth of God to the people of God. That's what he wanted. And he wanted them to train up more men like that. To be that kind of a man of God, they must study the Word of God. They must flee the world. They must follow after holiness. They must fight the good fight and be faithful to sound doctrine even to the end of their life. And there are many so-called people who are teachers, but they're not men of God. And I want to close out with just an account that I read. Uh, I heard it from John MacArthur. I'm not sure where he got it from. I've adapted it a little bit. But it's it's some suggestions to make a preacher into a man of God. A man of the Word. And I think this is a vital exhortation for most churches today, including ours. But it says, lock him in his office with his books and his Bible and tear the office sign from the door and nail up the sign, study. Slam him down on his knees before the Holy Scripture and a holy God with the sounds ringing in his ears of the broken hearts of his people and their struggles with sin. Force him to be the one man in the community who knows God. Make him taste the bitterness of the lonely valley of suffering. Engage him to wrestle with God all night long and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing to others. Shut his mouth forever from speaking on worldly non-essentials. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Burn his eyes with weary study. Give him a heart of concern and compassion, not only for his own soul, but for the souls of those who hear him. Make him renounce his pride and walk humbly with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Take away his cell phone. Remove him from the internet. Make him study himself to death and then pray himself alive again. Give him a Bible and time to the pulpit. Make him preach the word of the living God. Give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says rings with the truth of eternity. Test him. Quiz him. Examine him. Humiliating for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for entangling himself in the affairs of everyday life, knowing more about worldly pursuits than the Word of God. Laugh at his frustrated efforts to play psychiatrist rather than preacher of the Word of God. Let him constantly hear ringing in his ears night and day the words of his people saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. And when at last he does enter the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God, and if he doesn't, then dismiss him. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus says the Lord. Break his self confidence, cast down his imagined popularity. Smack him hard with his own deluded sense of self-importance. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for heavenly wisdom. And give him no escape until he's back against the wall of the Word 
and then sit down before Him and listen to the only Word He has left. God's Word. And when He's burned out by giving the flaming Word of God to man, and when He's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through Him, and the time has come for His own departure from earth to heaven, then bear Him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay Him down softly and place a two-edged sword on His coffin and lower Him in the grave triumphant, for He was a brave soldier of the Word. And before He died, He had become a man of God. Well, that was Paul's heart for Timothy and Titus. That they would commit themselves to the ministry of the Word, to the benefit and the blessing of the people of God. And although much of this is uniquely attributed to these two Christian leaders, these two apostolic delegates, there is certainly plenty of encouragement and exhortation for all of the people of God. Paul's heart for Timothy and Titus was to be men of God because that was his heart for himself. And by the grace of God, that's what Paul was. He was a man of the Word. He was a man of God. And I think it's fitting for all of us to aspire to that level of maturity, that level of being committed to sound doctrine, that it might produce sound living within our life. That we would all be sensitive to flee from sin, to pursue after and chase after that which is holy and godly in the sight of the Lord. That when we come to our last day, that we might die in faith in Christ Jesus, having by His grace been faithful to Him. Well, Nero Caesar, probably he ruled and reigned from 54 to 68. He executed Paul sometime before June of 68. So probably he executed the Apostle Paul in the year 67, maybe 68. But what a godly man. What a godly example. And what a heart for the Word of God and the heart for the ministry and the heart for the people of God that they would know Christ and know His Word. And may that be true of us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for raising up this incredible man of God, the Apostle Paul, who is such a rebel, such an enemy, such a hater of Christ, until you met him on the road to Damascus and you laid hold of him and you imprisoned him in your grace. You chose him to carry the gospel to both Jew and Gentile, to be a vessel in your hands that the word of God would be preached far and wide. And we thank You, Lord, that through His writings 
inspired by the Spirit of God, preserved for us in the Word of God, that we can find encouragement and blessing and exhortation to live faithful lives too. Oh God, help us in our weakness. Lord, may Your Spirit sanctify us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.